You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that I can improve my content for you, the listener, shoot me a message on Twitter at Ellis A. Tucci. I would love to hear from you. To catch up on all my past episodes and hear new ones every week, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or HiddenHistory.show and learn something new today. This is the final part in my labor series, but it turns out I kinda really like doing these multi-part things because then I don't have to come up with a radically different episode each week. If you have any suggestions for a series I should do in the future, feel free to let me know. I ended last episode talking about the creation of right-to-work laws and their creator, a very unsavory man by the name of Vance Muse. Today I'm going to move forward a bit and talk about, well, a few more things, which I should hope would be obvious. The main focus of this episode is going to be labor relations in the latter half of the 20th century, specifically under the presidency of Ronald Reagan. That means, of course, that today we're talking about the 1981 Patco strike, one of the most impactful labor disputes in the past few decades. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 52, Ronald Reagan versus ATC. So, surprise, I'm not just going to jump the timeline straight to 1981, I've gotta talk about a lot of other stuff first. In order to get to the complete picture on the Patco strike, we actually need to go back to the 1940s. <sighs> okay, I suppose if I'm going to go back that far, I really should start in the late 1930s. We need to talk about Ronald Reagan and Hollywood. It turns out that Ronald Reagan did a lot more to the motion picture industry than leave behind a string of bad movies. In 1937, when he moved to California from rural Illinois, in a somewhat surprising move, he joined a union. Specifically, he joined the Screen Actors Guild. Reagan quickly ascended to a position of power within the union, assuming the office of president in November 1947. He would be re-elected six times, holding two non-consecutive terms as the ninth and thirteenth president over the organization. Reagan helmed the SAG through the implementation of Taft-Hartley and through a number of large industry strikes. It was Reagan that secured the creation of the residual payment system that is still in place today. But we've got to be careful here. At the time, Ronald Reagan was a registered Democrat and considered Franklin Roosevelt his personal hero. It turns out that maybe there's good reason to doubt the sincerity of that statement, but I'll get to that in a bit. No. Ronald Reagan was no leftist hero. He used his position within the Screen Actors Guild to procedurally eliminate the leftist elements of the union. Not only did he cooperate with the House Un-American Activities Committee, but he was actually an FBI informant who fed the Bureau names of suspected communists within his own organization. The paranoia of the 1950s seemed to take its toll on Reagan's politics. As the decade dragged on, he moved further and further right, influenced, no doubt, by the writings of then-notable conservatives like William Buckley and the tutelage of executives at one of his employers, General Electric, Ronald Reagan began to adopt increasingly pro-corporate stances. In 1961, when President Eisenhower held the first White House Conference on Aging, one of the results was a proposal for a healthcare system for Social Security beneficiaries, which would later become Medicare. 
Reagan reacted to this policy, something his hero FDR would have supported, by creating an opposition recording, stating that, quote, we will awake to find that we have socialism, and if we don't do this, and if I don't do it, one of these days you and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in America when men were free. So what we can get from this quote is that to Reagan, providing bare-bones health coverage to a vulnerable population is socialism, and pretty soon we're all going to be wearing matching gray jumpsuits and have numbers instead of names. Honestly, though, it's, it's kind of easy to mock a statement like that because, well, it's ridiculous. But looking at Reagan's recorded opposition to Medicare from a humorous perspective can make us forget what a monstrous stance that is to hold. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. In this episode, Ronald Reagan is the villain. Yeah, sure, Medicare got implemented anyway, so we can look back at his wild claims and see them for the lies that they were, but we don't have the benefit of that perspective on scores of other things that Reagan took positions on, because eventually, he got power. We can't look back at things like the AIDS crisis and see it as a close call because Ronald Reagan let it happen. He knowingly let almost 100,000 people die because he refused to acknowledge the epidemic existed. We can't laugh at the fact that we almost had a mental health crisis in the United States because deep Reagan-era cuts into hospital funding gutted the already meager accommodations we had for mental health. This is the guy who opposed apartheid protests because he said they would, quote, hurt the very people they were trying to help. This is the guy who signed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which established mandatory minimums for drugs like marijuana. The bill itself promoted incredible racial disparities in policy enforcement. This is the guy who, while as governor of California, instituted tuition onto the UC system because he was afraid of a, quote, educated proletariat. Unhinged statements like, Healthcare for old people will turn America into a dystopian nightmare are funny when the guy saying them doesn't have decision-making power. So now it's about time that we talked about PATCO and their role in the election of 1980. PATCO, or the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Association, was founded in 1968 to represent, well, air traffic controllers. The thing is, though, air traffic controllers work for the FAA, and it's illegal for federal employees to strike. As a result, there were two real methods that PATCO could use to put pressure on the FAA. The first is what's called a slowdown, and it's pretty much what it sounds like. PATCO initiated its first slowdown in 1968, claiming that it was needed to increase air safety. In protest, they followed every single applicable FAA regulation for ATC, resulting in significant delays on all American flights. The other tactic is what's called a sick-out, which is when employees call out sick en masse. It's a strike action, but it's not technically a strike. The PATCO controllers initiated their first sick-out in 1969, followed by a 1970 sick-out in which 2,000 striking controllers caused major delays across the country. Although a court order eventually forced the members of the union to stop calling in sick, the tactic had worked, and it forced the government to begin bargaining with PATCO. The 1970 sick-out is important because it sets PATCO's expectation for government response to their strike action. And so we get to 1980. 
At the time, Paco had a pretty rough relationship with the Carter administration's FAA, and so they decided to become one of the only unions to endorse Reagan's presidential bid. Reagan, of course, won in a landslide victory, and Patco now saw themselves as an important political asset to the new president, an ally, as it were. Ronald Reagan had even endorsed the union's efforts to improve the working conditions in air traffic control. It turns out, Paco couldn't have been more wrong. Ronald, we must remember, was not a friend of labor. In January 1981, just as he assumed office, Patco opened new contract negotiations with the FAA. They wanted a shorter work week, a pay increase, and better benefits. The basic version of the story is that the FAA rejected the union's demands, then issued a counterproposal, which Patco rejected in turn. After that, the union went on strike, and after threatening the strikers with mass firings, Reagan actually did it, firing around 10,000 air traffic controllers. In the story, it would be incredibly easy to paint Patco as a hapless victim of the machinations of a Cold War president, but that would, I think, make this episode a little bit intellectually dishonest. Patco was not a paragon of leftist ideals, some exemplar of the perfect union. In fact, the downfall of Patco, in part, can be blamed on the strategies and policies of Patco itself. It was an insular and somewhat backwards union, neglecting to form alliances with other labor organizations and largely ignoring the needs of its non-white, non-male members. The FAA's counteroffer at the beginning of contract negotiation could most likely have been accepted by union leadership and be seen as a massive victory. They would have gotten twice the pay raises that were allotted to all other federal employees. But Paco thought that they could hold out for a better deal. During the election, Reagan implied that he would be easy on the union during upcoming negotiations thanks to their endorsement. Because Patco neglected to form solidarity bonds with other unions, it had to rely largely on political support to bolster its bargaining power. They thought that the endorsement that had alienated them from the rest of the labor community had gained them a significant amount of clout with the president. They were wrong. On August 3rd, 1981, Patco declared a strike, and 13,000 air traffic controllers walked off the job. In accordance with the powers granted by the Taft-Hartley Act, Reagan claimed that the strike was, quote, a peril to national safety, and ordered the strikers to return to their jobs or be fired. Only 1,300 did. In a public address, Reagan said the following, quote, Let me read the solemn oath taken by each of these employees a sworn affidavit when they accepted their jobs. I am not participating in any strike against the government of the United States or any agency thereof, and I will not so participate while an employee of the government of the United States or any agency thereof. They are in violation of the law, and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. Due to their violation of a federal law, a court ordered the union to pay $100,000 a day for each day the union was on strike. Soon, the 48 hours was up, and Reagan made good on his promise, firing 11,345 strikers. To add insult to injury, he banned them from federal service for life. Clinton would then rescind the ban in 1993. After the firings, the National Labor Relations Board then decertified PATCO, meaning that it was no longer a recognized union, and the organization quickly crumbled to dust. Defenders of Reagan's actions during the strike will often correctly point out that the strike was illegal. It's true, it was, 
but that raises the better question of why federal employees should be exempted from protesting their labor conditions. The government claimed that it would be able to return staff levels to pre-strike numbers within two years. It actually took over 10, and cost significantly more than what PATCO wanted in their original demands. So it turns out that in breaking the strike, the long run hurt the government far more than it helped. But the Pyrrhic victory of the federal government was lost on private employers, and Reagan's handling of the PATCO strike emboldened corporations to simply refuse to deal with strikers. This undermining effect on organized labor can be seen almost immediately in the failed 1985 strike against Hormel Foods in Austin, Minnesota. If you'd like to learn more about the Hormel strike, I'd suggest that you watch American Dream, a 1990 documentary by Barbara Koppel. The Paco strike and Reagan's response is probably the most defining moment of the labor movement in modern times. The president got to look like a tough guy at the expense of the evisceration of workers' rights that would follow in its wake. Union membership has plummeted from 32% to 12%. There was a concentrated effort by the Reagan administration to break the back of organized labor, and it won. According to economic historian Benjamin Applebaum, Ronald Reagan's Fed chairman Paul Volcker, who died earlier this week at the age of 92, carried in his pocket, at all times, an index card where he tracked union wage deals. His ignominious Volcker shock when the Fed decided to rein in inflation by running the economy into a brick wall had the very expected side effect of crushing organization attempts across the country. We are now living in an era where workers' rights are at near-historic lows, where Amazon warehouses have ambulances on standby for workers who collapse on the job, where people are forced to trade their life and well-being in exchange for near-poverty wages. I think it's about time that we reevaluate our relationship with the union and with collective power. Together, a better future is possible. One quick note before I go. Today is the UK general election. To all of my, I don't know, 50 listeners in the United Kingdom, if you listen to this show, you are probably already going to do so. But for God's sake, vote Labour. Thanks for listening. I've really enjoyed producing this miniseries. Tune in next week for something completely different. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off. <laughs>